Welcome to Music and the Church, a podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza. This summer, I had the pleasure of going to the Christian Congregational Music Conference held just outside of Oxford, England. When I was there, I recorded conversations with all of the conference's plenary speakers, and I've released one already. If you missed that one with the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Arnold talking about music and faith, uh, you can go to musicandthechurch.com. Today's conversation is with Dr. Emma Hornby, and we are discussing the old Hispanic chant. Dr. Hornby is a professor of music at the University of Bristol, and she specializes in medieval chant. And you might be wondering, what is Old Hispanic Chant? Well, stay tuned. Emma is going to tell us about what Old Hispanic Chant is, what it has to do with us today, and even what kinds of manuscripts are available today, and what we can find out about how the music sounded. It's a really fantastic conversation, and uh, we focus in on processional chants, which have some fascinating theological things going on in there. So this is Dr. Emma Hornby for episode 42 of Music and the Church, and you can find the show notes as well as a transcript for this episode at musicandthechurch slash 42. Old Hispanic chant, where did it come from? Old Hispanic chant is what they sang in modern day Spain and Portugal up until about the year 1080, and it seems to have been composed, compiled in the 7th century our earliest evidence is a little bit later, early 8th century. But th So this is very ancient Christian chant. It's Latin, it's Roman Catholic, but it's not Gregorian chant. It's absolutely not the liturgy and not the chant that they were doing in Rome or across the rest of Western Europe. It's a local way of singing in worship. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of Gregorian chant and other kinds of chant? Because I think many of our listeners will have experienced Gregorian chant, maybe maybe through the Libra Usualis. So we're more familiar with Gregorian chant, but there are so many other regional chant families. And what's what's the story going on there? In the very early Middle Ages, I mean, as Christianity was spreading across Europe, pretty much everybody was singing chant, but there was no sense that there was one authoritative way of doing it. There is a tradition which is associated with Milan, which we still have, much later manuscripts. The manuscripts are sort of 12th century, but we have that tradition. Then there were traditions associated with Gaul. We've lost almost all of that. Traditions associated with Ireland. Again, we've lost almost all of that. Um, Benevento in southern Italy. And then Iberia, Spain and Portugal. And then there were, there were chant traditions also associated with Rome. And in the... Uh, 8th century, for various reasons, the, 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 the emperors of pretty much what's modern day France and Germany, of Francia, took on the Roman way of doing liturgy and the Roman way of singing that went with it, or what they thought was the Roman way of singing that went with it. And that's what spread like wildfire across Western Europe. So that by the 10th or 11th century, they were pretty much singing the same songs on the same days right across Western Europe from Dublin to Dubrovnik. And we have evidence from both ends of that of that scale. This is kind of a, a political unification, like by unifying liturgical elements, unifying the empire. Absolutely so. And it came with a narrative of, of authority and of uniformity. So it wasn't just Roman chant, but this was 
Gregorian chant whispered into the ear of Pope Gregory the Great by the Dove of the Holy Spirit. And the iconography is all about that. It's all mm-hmm. about that story with that the Dove mandate. of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Absolutely so. So the fact that they go on doing their own indigenous chant in Spain up until the year 1080 when Pope Gregory VII and the king of the time, King Alfonso, they made a deal that they would switch across to doing Roman liturgy with Gregorian chant. And that was that was a big controversy at the time. You know, there was pushback against it. But in a way, it was incredible that, they, that they'd kept going with their local tradition that long, that they submitted to the authority of the Pope for hundreds of years, but they didn't submit to the authority of the Pope's liturgy. What does that mean for the manuscripts, for what's left in the archive? Because like, I'm imagining like, you've got this stuff that you're not really allowed to do anymore, and yet we apparently still have manuscripts a thousand years later. That's right. And what we have is bits and pieces. There will have been hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts circulating in the Middle Ages. And what we have is 40 manuscripts or fragments. Quite a lot of our fragments are where a manuscript of Old Hispanic chant or Old Hispanic liturgy was used to protect a later manuscript, used as fly leaves or as binding fragments. So we'll have a manuscript from the, let's say, the 10th century or the 11th century, where the original manuscript probably had 300 folios, that's 600 pages. And what we have is two folios, one by folium, so that's four pages. And the rest is gone, just gone. Just disappeared. And then occasionally we have the whole book. And what seems to have happened mostly is that when they were suppressing the liturgy, it seems that at the Abbey of Santo Domingo de Silos, they gathered together basically an example of each book. So we have a bit, a book for the Advent and Christmas se- season. Uh, we have a book for Eastertide and post-Pentecost. We have books for the saints. We have books for the kind of things like marriage and ordinations and consecrations of churches, those kind of things. Special that, occasions. Yeah, special occasions. What we're missing from that monastery is Lent. So clearly the Lent book got lost. So that's one thing we have. And then we have books for what you do at night time and uh, a book of what you do at night time and a book of the Psalms and a book of the canticles and a book of hymns. And it really is as if some librarian in, in the monastery library there in about the year 1100 thought, I had better collect together all of this or it's going to be lost. So we still have those. Thank you, old librarian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much, old librarian. And then apart from that, we have three or four just very, very beautiful presentation books, um, mostly associated with the kings of Léon of, um, or Léon Castile, where we have the king's monogram in the book or we know that the book was copied for the king and it's full of gold leaf. And I, was, I would not be the person who destroyed that book. You know, even if the Pope <laughs> yes. said you're not going to do this liturgy anymore, that book's going to be kept because it's so precious. And a presentation book is very different, I, I think, from like what a monk would have been singing from. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, they're, they're, they're laid it's out. It's not with... for use. No, no. And we can tell that none of our surviving manuscripts were heavily used. If they were heavily used, they'd be covered in thumb marks and wax and, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And, and they're not. They're mostly in good condition. That they were library copies. They were either, well, they were either reference copies that where you'd go and check what the chant is for Tuesday, or they are presentation copies, which are incredibly valuable objects, which almost become part of the kind of the liturgical furniture of an institution. So what do these manuscripts have to tell us about musical sound? This is the really fun bit. They tell us we have thousands and thousands of these chants with musical notation which is very exciting. 
but the musical notation only tells you within each notational symbol it tells you whether the melody goes up or down but it does not tell you how far up or down it goes so i can tell you the contour of a lot of this music but i have no idea what any of the notes are i have no idea what any of the intervals are so actually for us now as modern scholars what we're seeing is visual patterns rather than i mean we do tend to sort of hear them in our mind's ear you know you get to the point where you kind of but i don't know if that's what it was you know i kind of i'm imagining that yeah so we have lots and lots of information about the about the melodies from these manuscripts but you have to let go of all of your understanding of how music works and of how musicology works in order to analyze it because you can't use any of the any of the methods that we, what, when, when we analyze music we think about what, what's the final note what's the final chord how do the cadences work what kind of range does this song have does it go from very low to very high i don't know i don't have any of that information what's the main note that gets used you know is there a note that you kind of that you latch onto through the piece as being important i have no idea how do you analyze the music then it's all pattern matching what what mm -hmm. we do, we've developed and it's over the last 10 years or so with my with my collaborators with rebecca malloy in particular we've developed analytical methods which we use we use software to help us but but it's i mean it's coming from our brains mostly it's the kind of pattern matching that they do with genetic with genetic dna sequencing so in wow. yeah and it's the same i mean we've stolen bits of that kind of we haven't stolen we have used bits of that kind mm -hmm. of computer code in order to in order to do our analysis so we're looking for strings of notational syllables that repeat and then we're looking for strings of notational syllables that repeat with gaps or strings of notational syllables that nearly repeat and then we're seeing those across in our database we have about seven or eight hundred chants and that's growing all the time yeah, we're, we're building up an understanding of what kind of patterns come round and round and what contexts they're used in. One of the terms that you've used is a melodic grammar. Can you tell us what that, what, what you mean by that? Conceptually, this probably goes back about 20 years to when I was writing my doctorate and I started reading bits of Steven Pinker and bits of Noam Chomsky. So these ideas of generative grammars. And I began to think, about whether music might have some of the same characteristics. These are massive repertoires which were carried for hundreds of years without notation before they were notated. And even when they're notated, you have to know how they go before you can read the notation. So the notation is, is an aid, but not, not a replacement for the knowledge of it. And in, in that generative grammar work by the linguists, they, they talk about... Um, well they're talking about the slot into which things go so that you know in a in a in a sentence you need you you probably need a noun to be a subject and then a verb and then a noun phrase to be an object and then you can build on a prepositional phrase on the end and there are rules about how those things work in different languages but that particular kinds of if you're in a particular point in a sentence there's a limited number of choices in order to say something which makes sense within that language and so then that got me thinking, well, when we're working with medieval chant, is it the same? If I'm at a particular point in a phrase or at a particular point in the whole chant, are there a limited number of options of what m somebody listening in the ninth century would listen to it and say, yeah, fair enough, rather than what are you doing? Mm -hmm. You don't do that there. And that's indeed what we found in these in these old Hispanic chants where we don't know we don't know what any of the notes are and yet 
I can see a string of notational symbols and say, well, that's a cadence. Or I can look at another string of notational syllables and say, that's a cadence and it always comes at the ends of sentences. Because mm, you're also you're not just looking at these this notation, you're looking at it next to the text. Exactly. And you can see where the end of the text is, but you can read the Latin. Exactly so. Yeah. Yeah. And the and the text is a major part of the notation, actually. I mean if you think, you know, if if you saw written on a on a page in front of you, if you saw the words Mary had a little lamb, you now have a tune in your head. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Text is just, you know, married te- together. Yeah. exactly. Text is perfectly good musical notation. And these squiggles that the scribes put on top is sort of a, an added extra. So like a, like a reminder. Exactly. So, yeah. Can we talk about processional chants? Sure. What, what is a processional chant? A processional chant simply is a chant that is sung while some people are moving around the church in a, ri- or moving around in a ritual manner. We still have processional chants in modern practice. So think of what happens in many, many churches in Advent. You often have big Advent ceremonies with people moving around the church with candles. And in the Middle Ages, this was a big part. I mean, processions go back as 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 long as humans have been doing rituals in a way. And some of it's purely pragmatic. If somebody dies then you want to have you want to have a bit in the church where you dedicate their soul to god so you need the body to be in the church and then a bit later you need the body to be in the tomb and the tomb is not going to be in the same place as where you did the dedicating the soul to god bit so people have got to move the body from that church place to wherever you're going to bury them and you're not going to do that just kind of shuffling along in an awkward way you're going to do that in a ritual way because you're in the middle of a very solemn ritual there you are you have a procession and in processions very often people sing and it's partly just to cover up the awkward silence and it's partly to make it more special to make it more yes to make it to make it more sacred for old hispanic chant are there lots of processional chants like is that is that the connection here not very many we have about 40 or so what happened was I, I, I met up with a, with a colleague of mine, David Andres Fernandez, who's now at the Complutense University in Madrid. And we met up about three years ago now and we were chatting. He is a specialist. He works on processions, but he mostly works on processions of the Roman liturgy with Gregorian chants. So he knows all about Palm Sunday processions and all that lot. He knows all about that. And he, I mean, it just sort of came up in conversation. He said, well, you know, what have you got? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, who knows? And I said, nobody knows. Nobody knows what old Hispanic processions there are. And he looked at me and I looked at him and we felt a grant proposal coming on. Oh, excellent. So the Leverhulme <laughs> Trust are funding us with our colleague Carmen Julio Gutierrez, also at the Complutense University in Madrid. And they're funding us for three years. And we are working together as a, as a trio on, I mean, the first thing we did was that David went through all of the manuscripts and all of the, all of the rubrics, they're the bits which tell you what to do to find all of the information we have about when people are moving ritually within the Old Hispanic liturgy. And nobody had done this. I mean, this is, it's kind of foundational, that, you know, that basic work that nobody had done before. So that was the first bit. And then the second bit is then isolating the chant that goes with those and seeing what we can find out about them. And I have questions about, are they just normal chants that you happen to be moving around while you sing? Or is there anything special about them? 
which makes them processional. And those are the things that we're in the middle of exploring right now. Any any hints to what, what you're discovering? That they are really varied. It's sort of the wrong answer. I was hoping that I would go, ah, oh, yes, processional chants are all like, insert neat catchphrase, but it's not, that's not how it's been at all. So, for example, there are something like 20-odd chants sung during the dedication of a church at the bit where they stashed away the relics. So saints' cults are highly important in this in this culture. And the saints' relics, they'd be in sort of tiny little tiny little packets, sort of, you know, an, an inch and a half wide. And all of the all of these relics and, and it would be a tiny bit of Saint Pelagius's cloak or 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 a little you know, it's that sort of thing. It they they sometimes they're body relics, but very often they're 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 not body relics. They're something to do with a piece of the saint's clothing or I don't know, a stone that they walked on even. That you know, they're they're just little precious objects that relate to a saint. And they would all be stashed in the altar. So when you look at these medieval Spanish and Portuguese altars, there are little sort of little niches in the like little in the stone, light little cubbies in the stone oh. where they where the relics would be kept safely so there's this when you dedicate a church i mean that's the first thing you you know you you're moving into your new church you're dedicating it to god next thing you need to do is to safely stash away all of the relics in the altar and there are 22 chants associated with that processional chants which are happening during the dedication of a church are really during the stashing of the relics are really varied some of them quite a sort of about eight or nine of them are big. So they have two moments within a chant where you have 20 or more notes on one syllable. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So they're big. And and then there are, you know, there are questions that arise for me about how do you keep everyone together? Oh, yeah, I immediately think, well, that must be for a single person singing it and not a, well, we have this little little chant that we're going to all sing collectively over and over and again, yeah, exactly. which is like my experience with processionals, you know, 21st century Protestant or yeah. Orthodox or whatever, where it's like, well, we've got this short thing and we're going to all sing it together because no way are we doing something melismatic. Yeah, I, I mean, it's madness. But And then at the yeah. other end of the scale, I have a couple of maybe two or three of those relic chants, which are what you describe, where the most you ever have is two or three notes on one syllable. Yeah. And if it's two or three notes on one syllable, the beginning of the next syllable, even if you're moving around, that helps to keep you all together. Mm -hmm. It gives it yeah. a rhythm, it gives the natural rhythm of the text. But when you've got 25 or, I mean, I think the largest of them has something like 47 notes. In oh, my goodness. I mean, it's just madness. So so then I don't know, is the, is the people or the person doing the singing, are they standing still while other people are doing the moving around? Yeah. I mean, there are so many questions that are raised by it. So it's, it's fascinating, but also slightly frustrating that, because the only evidence I have, it just says at the beginning of this list of antiphons, it says in Latin, antiphons for the relic procession. That's it. That's 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 the information. That's all we know. So we, so we don't know who is moving and who is singing and whether they're moving when they're singing. That no, we don't know any of that stuff. And yet, you've said that there that this says something about devotional experience. That's right. So for some of the processional moments, we have really detailed, really detailed information. The one I'm going to talk about tomorrow morning, it's in the Good Friday ceremony and it's the Adoration of the Cross. And we know that a wooden cross, and they keep talking about the lignum crucis, and of course there are bits of what they believed to be the true cross in Spain at the time. So in some churches, when they say that you put, you take 
the cross to the altar. They mean the true cross. They mean the wood that they believe is part of the true cross. And is that what the lignum crucis is? Yeah, the lignum crucis. Mm -hmm. So they put that on a pattern, you know, those kind of those big uh, metal dish things that you that you put the communion on. But a big one, not a little one, a big, a, a big one, probably. They put the cross on that. They put it on the high altar and then a deacon lifts it up. Remember that people probably can't see this. Mm -hmm. He's behind a curtain. Yeah. Or he's behind a screen. Like nothing. This is for the, this is, this is not for the, not for the laity to see. And then while the deacons are singing three beautiful but complex chants, the cross is brought out and they process either to the chapel of the Holy Cross or to a church of the Holy Cross. So either they're moving across the church or everybody is going. And this is with the congregation as well processing through the streets to the next church and so we wow. have the songs that they sang there then when they get to the next church everybody kisses the cross i mean and and it is the adoration of the cross and they sing a hymn while they do it and everybody sings the hymn the rubric's very clear that the bishop and the deacons and the clerics and the people everybody everybody sings so i'm guessing there's no like 45 note no it's a really simple melody <laughs> yeah. really simple and i i estimated if you if they did it as a it's a beautiful hymn it's just it's amazing it's um it's 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 an alphabet it starts with very famous text by Venantius Fortunatus which is Crux Fidelis which is part of a much longer hymn part of Pangilingua which is a very famous mm -hmm. hymn but it's this one stanza Crux Fidelis and then whoever created this hymn text goes through the alphabet A B C D E so each stanza begins with the next letter of the oh, alphabet. Cool. Which would help you remember would, it. Yes, yes, there's and a lot. <laughs> it works through from the incarnation all the way through. Uh, so incarnation, annunciation, nativity, through to the passion. There's about nine verses on the passion, which is not surprising. It's Good Friday, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Then resurrection, Pentecost, and we get the paraclete in the in the text. But, sorry, resurrection, Pentecost, ascension. And then you get the last judgment. So then you get about two or three uh, stanzas about the last judgment and about how, this gives me shivers, a procession of angels carry the Holy Cross at the last judgment to protect the faithful. So they've just carried the cross oh, in real life. Yeah. And now they're singing about angels carrying the cross and that will protect them at the last judgment. It's just amazing. And then they go back to the cross and they have this, these these stanzas of praise to the cross at the end. It's the most incredible text. It just gives me shivers thinking about it. And I think, wow, that's an amazing literary achievement. But actually, if you add it up, and I don't think the whole congregation is singing all those stanzas because they wouldn't it's know them. It's a lot them. of words, yeah. But I think they're all singing Crux Fidelis. So mm -hmm. I think it probably goes Crux Fidelis, stanza A, Crux Fidelis, stanza B, Crux Fidelis, mm -hmm. stanza C. Mm -hmm. So everybody yeah. gets to join in the refrain. The, the cantor of the congregation, the cantor of the exactly. congregation. And then I worked out how long it would take, and it's about half an hour. So half an hour is actually plenty of time, however big your congregation. Half an hour is plenty of time for your congregation, for everybody to kiss the cross and then to go back either to the main church or to the main altar with your cross, safely stash it back in the treasury and that's the end. I mean, yeah. it, you know, because I have to do it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, it's, so that's really exciting for me, thinking about what is the, what are the logistics of this thing? And even when I don't know what the notes are, I can still roughly work out how long you can take to sing it. We don't know what the notes are. But with that hymn, it's Crux Fidelis. Like, that, that's in circulation. Everybody in Europe is singing Crux Fidelis. 
So I thought, I do I wonder, I just wonder if we know this melody. And I was just browsing. I mean, it was about the fourth thing I looked at. It was really quick. I was looking at a manuscript from Aquitaine in the 11th century, which has pitch, and it's the same melody. So that's really, so, you know, and I could match it up. You know, my, my notation goes dot, dot, curve meaning two notes, and the other one goes da, 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 da. It's like, yeah, it's the same thing. And you can work through it. It's the same thing right through. So I can sing that melody. So I'm curious... Is this um is this a kind of notation where you can say like um like I'm thinking of old Beneventan music yeah. where it's like well we have this pattern that probably had a repeating pitch like if you have this pattern it's these pitches so if you are able to see the Pangelingua um mm. piece from Aquitaine and see the pitches for that are yeah. you able at all to map it onto other songs It's not enough It's not like it's not that. enough That's not how it works And the other problem with this notation it's not like a graph you might you know with modern notation if a note is lower down on the page, you know it's a lower down note. Mm-hmm. Even if yeah. you can't read notation, that, yeah. that height metaphor is in operation. No, we don't do that. So mm. you can have you can have four syllables and each one has a dot and it goes dot, 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 dot all in a row. And then you look at the pitched version and in the pitched version it goes la, 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 la. Because yeah, they're just which, going dot, uh-huh, dot, dot. Uh-huh. So it's not... It's nothing like as precisely heighted as the Beneventum uh, materials. Yeah. It's quite annoying, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it is the wrong like answer. You like, a, like, a, like a challenge. <laughs> yeah, and we, we have across the whole repertoire, not the processional chants, I mean the whole, whole, whole repertoire of, t- of tens of thousands of chants, we have about 26 or so chants which are preserved with pitch. Oh, and I've done a that's pretty good. yeah, and I've done a lot of work on those in the last few years. Again, with Rebecca, with Rebecca Malloy, and what we found is when we have repeated combinations of notational symbols in the old notation, and then you look at those and how they map on to the pitched notation, it doesn't always mean the same thing in the pitched notation. Mm. So there's an example which is a note and a higher note, a note and a lower note, a low note, and there's something like six different pitch outlines that oh. that combination goes with. So, la, 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 la. I mean, there's so many that you can do with that. And that was slightly annoying when we found that. But it does mean that, you know, you really have to be really careful not to assume that just because a few of the notational symbols are the same, it means it the means same. something, yeah. And we would only really latch onto it when it's bigger than that, when you've got sort of seven or more mm-hmm. notes, which are all equivalent. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we have to be yeah, really careful yeah. with it. So a lot of our listeners are practitioners, and I'm curious if you have anything to say to them and practice of what they're doing. Like, I, there's a lot of value. To be clear, there's a lot of value in doing work that doesn't have immediate <laughs> relevance. But, you know, if you have some connections, that's also really nice. The thing that, the thing that really strikes because it's a voyage of discovery looking at this these old hispanic materials so few people have looked at them partly because it's obscure partly because it's not roman you know it's peripheral in all the if you see what i mean it's geographically peripheral because quotes who cares about iberia Mm -hmm. you know it's not central europe and it's peripheral because it may be roman catholic but it's not roman and it's peripheral because we've only got 40 manuscripts, not hundreds. In all those ways, it's sort of, it's obscure and on the edge, so it's hardly been mm-hmm. looked at. Mm-hmm. But then when we do look at it, it's so sophisticated theologically. I mean, it's it's a proper Trinitarian theology, but it's not the same emphasis. You don't get the same Good Friday experience as you would get in a Roman liturgy church it's just it's a it's a different deal and yes you're still adoring the cross but that great big alphabet hymn and that's just part of what they're doing on good friday it gives you a very particular 
theological experience. And I think there are things that modern practitioners can can really learn about the value of the value of putting together something that really is thought through theologically, that that you know what doctrine you're wanting to communicate to your congregation, even if you just said it to them in words, they would have no idea what you were talking about. And yet that can be implied in your choices of materials. And for church musicians, for composers, again, the way you present text gives people a particular experience of that text. And we all know that implicitly, but where do you punctuate your text? How often do you have cadences? My cantors sometimes have cadences every two words. You know, they, they're really breaking up the text and that gives you time to really digest what's just happened. Or they'll have a moment where the music just goes along, boom, 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 boom. And then you do have this massive outpouring of song for, say, 20 notes on one syllable. And maybe that happens on the word, we will be saved. And so there's a moment where sort of time just stops on the word saved. And that's an opportunity mm-hmm. for everybody just to think about that for a moment. Mm-hmm. I don't think we do enough of that in, in modern liturgy. I think we, when we present text, I mean, it's certainly within the Protestant tradition, it's all about, you know, making sure you communicate the text. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I mean, obviously that, you know, that's really important. But there are moments when you've commute when you've communicated enough of the text that people now know what word they're on and if that's a really important word there can be an opportunity to to jubilate to 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 allow the praise to go wordless and yeah i think so i think there is so much that we can learn from these are not primitives Mm -hmm. these are these are the brightest and the best minds of the early middle ages who and we have these these I think these artifacts that we have, these these musical and liturgical artifacts we have, are as valuable as a Gothic cathedral, because, and in a way even more valuable, because a, a Gothic cathedral is a space in which something precious happens. But we have the evidence of the something precious, and if we if we take that seriously and we look at it, there's a huge amount for us to learn about about how to approach God in different ways. Thank you for this conversation. This has been wonderful. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks to Dr. Emma Hornby for this conversation. You can find show notes and a transcript at musicandthechurch.com slash 42, where you can also find lots of resources for musicians and other church staff members. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'm Sarah Breeza, and I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church.